بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم نحمده ونصلي على رسوله الكريم أما بعد we express our praise and gratitude to Allah Taala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, I suppose before we begin, anybody have any questions about anything other than Aman's question, which is what have you guys covered? But um, any questions about anything at all? Nothing. Okay, cool. All right, so let me see if I can do the share screen properly again. Uh, did that work? Is the screen sharing? Can you all hear me? Anyone? Yep, yep, for sure. Okay, cool. All right. So, so we've been discussing a number of things over the past few weeks. Uh, uh, when we were finishing off, we were introducing this idea of the so-called Salafis and, and the Wahhabis and all of that. And this also raises the, the big point about terrorism. You know, how does, how does terrorism fit within Islamic law? And, and I mean, some of the points that, are, that should be obvious, first and foremost, are that uh, when we think of the supervillains of the past 20 years, whether we're talking about Osama bin Laden himself, uh, Ayman al-Zawahiri, the, the number two of, of, of al-Qaeda, these are people with minimal Islamic training. Uh, anybody know what Ayman al-Zawahiri, uh, al-Qaeda's number two, what, uh, what he is by training? I mean, I guess he's number one since Osama bin Laden's been dead for 10 years. But... Wait, who? Uh, so, okay, so what's uh, Osama bin Laden's uh, uh, education? Anybody know? I'm not sure for education, but wasn't he like like a business, like farmer or something? Because I heard a podcast about, I don't know much about Osama bin Laden, I'm not associated, but uh, it was just a great podcast by Radio Lab. It was um, highly recommended. But, um, there was someone who opened his hand and they were just tracking him. I just heard that he used to be a business owner and like had like a bunch of farms. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so his family was a big construction family. And, and he himself, uh, yeah, he was, he was in business and such, but a lot of his wealth is basically inherited from his family by training. He is said to be, uh, uh, have an MBA and perhaps an engineering degree, right? And the person who became his successor is, is Ayman al-Zawahiri. He was, by training, a pediatrician. And, and, and so the point I'm making is these, are, these people are not Islamic scholars. They're not anywhere close to, to being uh, Islamic scholars. When, we, uh, when ISIS was rising, I did all kinds of research into them. And there you see the exact same problem. The, the difference is that with Osama bin Laden and Amal Zawahiri, you see random references to Quran and Hadith. With ISIS, you would see much more reference to, to uh, primary Islamic sources, but their, their approach to interpreting these things were, were bizarrely literalistic. Okay. Were bizarre, bizarrely literal. And so, so the key point that I'm making is that all these supervillains that, that we talk about uh, in the news uh, tend to historically be people who have very minimal uh, Islamic training. This also applies to Anwar al-Awlaki, who was killed in a drone strike. Uh, he was looked at as someone very knowledgeable, but even him, uh, the way he was quoting sources, it also seemed like he, his training was still falling very, very short of, of what is necessary for, for a scholar. And so... <clears throat> 
nevertheless, this has also raised the whole issue where Khazar uh, Bulfadl is talking about about the problem of Islamophobia. Now, one point uh, I want you all to think about is that when we look at the interpretations of the terrorists, and when we look at the interpretations of the Islamophobes, they often are the same thing. That, uh, you know, when uh, drawing attention to, to passages in the Quran, the Hadith, that tend to be of a conflict nature or focused on war and such, um, and privileging those over the rest of the text. We don't find that among the mainstream of Islam. We don't find that among Islamic scholars, but we do find that among those two specific groups, the terrorists and the Islamophobes. So the Islamophobes that are trying to show that Islam is inherently violent, that Islamic law is inherently a constrictive, uh, destructive uh, tradition, and then the terrorists that are saying the same thing. Okay. Uh, and this is something that Khalid Abu Fadl seems to draw attention to uh, as well. The deeper problem, of course, is, is very simplistic readings of, of, of all of the texts. And then, and then he goes on and on about that. Another point uh, about uh, Islamophobia, and this is more me speaking than him, is that uh, it used to be that our conversations uh, in the Muslim community tend to be a whole lot more free, especially in terms of matters related to politics and such. But what's happened after 9-11 is that, this, that our community has gotten very, very, has internalized its own Islamophobia and has internalized its own fear. And so there's a lot of conversations the community won't have. And so, <clears throat> So the point I'm trying to make is that when we are often deliberating about Islam, so so we made a joke right here at the beginning of the call uh, where, uh, you know, like in case the FBI is listening or something like that, right? Um, that's something that's literally being internalized all across the community that has affected our discourse and it has affected our community infrastructure building. It's this fear of persecution and prosecution. And, and so I'm not saying go around and start talking about killing and, and, and pillaging and all that, obviously, but the point I'm making is that this is something that has really, really affected us at a very, very deep level. And, and, that's, not, and that's only talking about our discourse. Uh, I think if someone were to do a study about how 9-11 and its aftermath has affected the mental health of the Muslim community, as well as the social health of the Muslim community, I think we'd find a lot of very fascinating things. And that's also part of what he himself is wrestling with, that just the destructive nature that 9-11 that has had on our, our populations in all kinds of different ways. And think about it, especially those of you who are younger, I think Aman is the youngest person in this room right now. Um, uh, I mean, Aman, you're probably younger than 9-11, or you're probably too young to, to remember it. Uh, Adil, do you have memories of it beyond just people talking about it over and over again? I wasn't in America when it happened. Oh, mashallah. <laughs> I moved a year after, so I'm surprised I got in, but... Okay, okay yeah. <laughs> okay. So, so even being outside of the country, did you have any memories of it? Uh, no, didn't even know what 9-11 was until... Yeah, at that time you were probably like three years old, four years old. Yeah. 
no, I was six. 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 Five. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Usaid said he's gone. Uh, Hadi, are you there? Do you want to share any memories of life before, on, and after 9 11? I don't know if you're speaking, we can't hear you. Can you hear me now? Yes. <laughs> okay, I think I have that lag. Um, yeah. I was actually a sophomore, my junior. I think I was a junior. No, I was a sophomore. I was a sophomore in high school mm. when it happened. And um, yeah, I have, what was your question? Oh no, just any, any memories, for example, of that day and then likewise, the difference between life before and life after. So I was, yes, off that day, I was actually in second period theater class. And uh, we heard about it. And I know, like, instinctively, I, I prayed. And I don't know why, because I didn't know much about the history of things before. But for some reason, like, instinctively, I was like, I hope it's not a Muslim. Mm -hmm. um, um, and then after that, I think I actually started wearing hijab after that and I started um and I established like MSA at our school and I think my whole my whole um response to it was I want to show people that regular Muslims are not like the terrorists and mm -hmm. I kind of took it upon myself to be one of those role models of like good Islam mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. oh yeah so I think life did change definitely and I think my career choices and then going to study political science afterwards and even right now law school everything has kind of been mm -hmm. somehow uh in response to that yeah, yeah. and uh, I think all of that thank you for sharing all that is literally a perfect example of, of what I'm saying the way that uh, by and large our community has totally internalized it you know as though it's become part of our being some of it not by choice but some of it uh this this feeling of compulsion whether it is to say you know i'm going to show what a real muslim is or you know i'm making my career choices uh accordingly yeah that's uh uh affected our lives and i don't know how how many years forward it'll continue to to affect our lives because i think uh unintentionally it also affects the way we raise our children it's 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 almost become part of our DNA, and it's not to say only us. I mean, it also gave birth to uh, without 9/11, there would not be this big Trump madness, and and that whole group that uh, uh, that feels energized uh, by him. But yeah, so 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 the point is that this is also what he's wrestling with to the point that he he also seems to be saying that um uh it has affected uh a whole lot of things he's speaking more from the side of islamophobia i'm speaking more from the side of how much we have uh we have uh, internalized it so uh, did you hear about the the beheading from the last from the last week anybody hear about that in france no, I heard France has been closing down a lot of masjids and like Muslim organizations, but I didn't hear about beheading. So, so a couple things are going on. The overall thing that's going on is that there's elections. It's election season in France as well, and Macron uh, has been using the Islamophobia, uh, uh, you know, platform 
to to raise his own uh, to raise his own platform. You know, this whole argument about about Muslims that are that are migrating to France are not are not integrating, and they're not speaking French and this and that. I mean, it's been a discussion uh, for as long as as long as migration has been happening for especially the last twenty years. Uh, uh, but he's been outright using it as a uh, as a, his own dog whistle um, to to get to to garner votes. But then what happened is that in some town, I don't know if it was in Paris or what, uh, some school teacher was giving some lesson uh, that involved photos of of the prophet peace be upon him or, or obnoxious drawings of him, and and the story is that. Uh, he told in advance the, uh, to the Muslim students to, to you know, that they're not going to be comfortable with this, so they're excused from class if they want. Um, but somehow word got to someone else uh, who may not have been involved with the school um, that this guy did this and this teacher did this, and so and this this you know this crazy man went after the teacher and literally beheaded him. Right, and. And so we also have, in addition to the supervillains doing their bizarro terrorism, that we also have these lone wolves doing their bizarro acts as well. And and so just like Hani mentioned, you know, when 9-11 happened, she's like, please don't let it be a Muslim. Uh, when we hear about these violent acts, I think that's still in in the minds of, of many people, you know, please don't let the perpetrator be a Muslim. You know, it's almost like it's a relief when it is not a Muslim. And and yeah, it's uh, it relates to uh, what people have to deal with in terms of of uh, uh, Islamophobia and such. Now, having said that, so that's one point in terms of what uh, we're just exploring through in the beginning part of the text. Another point is is critiquing Islamic history and Islamic law. Uh, and so so there's the Islamophobic way to critique law. Or Islam itself, and then there's the there's just like the the sympathetic academic way, and this applies to anything. This applies to Judaism, to Christianity, um, whatever the case may be. I mean, there's a hostile way, and so the question that I'm asking essentially is that if I wanted to show that it's, that the Quran is a book of war, can I do that? Can uh, is there enough in the Quran for me to illustrate that it is a book of war? What do you say? Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Right. There's there's probably give or take out of six thousand passages. There's probably give or take probably about a hundred that deal with war, uh, that deal with armed conflict and such. And so, if I wanted to show that the Quran is a violent book, I have enough passages to make that point. And then, likewise, if I want to show that Islamic tradition has whatever problem, whether it is barbaric or patriarchal, uh, I can find passages that I can, that I can spin that way, whether they're passages about slavery, passages about concubines, so forth and so on. Now, if I'm trying to look from an academic perspective, an objective perspective, so different than an even sympathetic perspective, uh, uh, I'm suggesting, and, and he would agree that no, by and large, uh, not only is the Quran and Islamic law a very, very peaceful text and tradition, uh, that is also its thrust. Its thrust is very much justice-oriented. 
and its thrust is very much akin to overall what we would speak of when we speak of things like human rights and such. As, as if we talk too much about human rights, there's a lot of you know, post-enlightenment issues there too. But the point I'm making is that if we were to make an objective study of our, our history of tradition, uh, we would find that, yeah, it does have patriarchy in it, no doubt. Uh, it is also still very egalitarian. It does talk about slavery. It does talk about war. It does talk about prisoners of war and all those things. And it does speak about a very uh, severe crime and punishment at times. But you, overall, however, you would find it to be rather soft. Again, I'm not saying that it's so wonderful and soft that you can apply it in 2020, everyone's going to be happy. No, I mean, um, uh, it is far more patriarchal in nature than it is speaking of things like violence and such, and far more patriarchal than we might be used to in a 2020 Chicago or American context and such. Well, these are points I'd like you to, to, to just think about and reflect when you imagine the text. Do you imagine the text to be something of the past or do you imagine the text, and by something of the past, I mean something primitive, or do you imagine them to be something uh, sophisticated and for lack of a better term, um, enlightened? Okay, uh, another point is the clash of civilizations thesis, which is here somewhere. So now let's get to our uh, whiteboard here. And this is a, a simple point. So there's this idea that still persists, the clash of civilizations. And so the, this goes back to two people. One is an, a scholar of Islam named Bernard Lewis. Bernard Lewis was a British scholar and he was very much pro-Western imperialism. And then it became even more popular under Samuel Huntington. So Samuel Huntington, I think Bernard Lewis taught at Princeton or I forget where he taught. And then Samuel Huntington taught at Harvard. And, and this is a good article to, to look up and read in terms of the PDF. You can find it pretty easily. It was, a, it was an article and then eventually it became a book and, and so Samuel Huntington in 1993 is speaking, uh, and he's speaking after the Soviet Union has fallen. So if we think about America in the large chunk of the 20th century, you have World War I, you have World War II, and then from World War II until about 1990, so about 40 years, uh, America has been in this Cold War with communism. Right, you have the Soviet Union, you have East Germany, you have Cuba, and, and a couple other, a couple other hotspots, and the Soviet Union then falls, which is essentially the end of communism, and in 1990, 1991, and and so now the question was, who's our new enemy? And Samuel Huntington suggested that it's no longer going to be a battle between political ideologies, or no longer going to be a battle between. Uh, uh, between nations, you know, jockeying for power. He said, the world is now uh, six 
uh, six types or six civilizations. Okay, there's the West. There's the old Orthodox Christianity. What region is this? Anybody know? Well, what would you say? So the region of, of, of Orthodox Christianity in terms of countries, what is this? You're talking like Greece, Russia? Yeah, especially Russia. Okay. So what was the land of communism? Uh, he's categorizing as the land of Orthodox Christianity. Uh, we have Africa, Latin America, China, and Islam. So he's saying these are the three civilizations, I'm sorry, the six civilizations of the world. So. I have a question really quick. Yeah. Well, it's not going to be a really quick question, but it's a question nonetheless. Um, so when you say civilization, you categorize these as civilizations. civilizations. How are some of these civilizations, like there is such an unfair comparison, say China versus Islam. Well, China is a whole, just one nation, uh, including one uh, ethno, ethnocultural uh, a demographic. Well, Islam represents around the whole world. How can you compare that as a civilization? So that's, you're illustrating one of the problems with his whole uh, projection of the world. Yeah. Uh, and, and so what he's basically saying is that these are six regions where people are unified um, over something that's a mixture of religion and culture and, and, and sometimes ethnicity and such. And, and so, for example, okay, so there's no Japan here. There's no, there's no Korea here. In, in his uh, portrayal of the world. And, and so this is what he's saying, that these are like the big regions. And, and he's saying the battle, the next round of battles is going to be a civilizational conflict. Yeah. And he says the next conflict is going to be with either China or Islam. Okay. And so that then, excuse me, influence foreign policy. Because how does American foreign policy work? It's you have a bunch of a bunch of smart type people or bureaucrats that are trying to keep their jobs. And, and so they're identifying where we need to focus in terms of diplomacy, where we need to focus in terms of war and such. And keep in mind, what is, uh, how does Islam especially fit into this? We just had the Gulf War also at the same time that the Soviet Union is falling. And in 1993, we had the first bombing of the World Trade Center. But uh, this became uh, the focus for, for a lot of our, our uh, um, foreign policy for, for the next couple of decades. So that was about uh, nearly 30 years ago that he said this. Yeah. But your point, Adil, is exactly it, is that the fundamental problem is that this is too simplistic. And it's so simplistic that it is absurd. And it also sort of presents all of these different regions as being equal in power. And so again, why are we talking about this? Because this has also influenced how people look at the world. So even speak of today, uh, I mean, aside from the fact of the election, 
uh, of all the regions of the world, which regions get the most attention? Uh, China, I mean, in terms of us talking about foreign nations, uh, China is now spoken of as a superpower, as a burgeoning superpower. And Islam is, I mean, ISIS is back in the news, probably just because of the election and such. And, and so I'm saying it's more than merely, uh, uh, you know, the uh, political conflict for why we keep hearing about some of these regions as much as we do. And then throw in oil and all those things that, that adds to it. And so he says, as I argue later in the book, the rise of Islamophobia and the paradigm of the clash of civilizations is a major moral regression that if not resisted will have a profound regrettable impact on humanity. And so he's saying this has dominated American thought and it's destructive. Uh, but this is built into to our thinking. In fact, let me take this point even a step further. Let's go back to our whiteboard here. So one thing that's also interesting in terms of how uh, we often define ourselves is so much of our narrative is this narrative of East versus West. So right now, it's sort of China versus the West. This is what we hear a lot about in terms of economics, right? Trump always talks about China. Okay. And then related to that, it's Islam versus the West. So if we moved back to 1990, 1980, we still used the language of East versus West. And so easy question, because I've basically already given the answer away. Back in 1980, when we spoke of East versus West, who was East? Russia. Yeah. So it was basically the USSR or communism versus the West or capitalism. So if you watch Rocky, Rocky Four, where Rocky is fighting against Ivan Drago, you know, to, um, to, to, to save the whole universe from the evils of capitalism, they literally spoke about it as East versus West. He dies, he dies. Yes, exactly. Thank you. Thank you for your <laughs> ability to quote Rocky Four. Okay. So if we moved all the way 500 years ago, uh, uh, East versus West was essentially Turkey or the Ottomans. Versus, uh, again, Western Europe. And then if we went even further back, it was the Eastern Roman Empire versus the Western Roman Empire. So where was the Eastern Roman Empire based? The Eastern was based in Constantinople. Yes, good. Constantinople, Constantinople. Wait, why is Roman fighting Roman? That's exactly how history happened. This is give or take around the year 1000. This is even the first time actually that the Romans fought each other. <laughs> and this is based in Rome. And the point that I'm making here is that this narrative of this clash 
it's literally hardwired into American thinking. That it's as though everything is about the fight. So this is this is central to how our sports operate, right? So it's not nearly, uh, it's not only, you know, uh, the Lakers versus the, of Miami and whoever's going to be the World Series. It's presented as a war, as a clash of good versus evil. This is this is literally in our American cultural DNA, which this whole approach he's speaking about as moral regression. And, and, and thus, essentially, in nice words, he's basically saying it's, it's destructive. Okay. <clears throat> so another quote. He says, after spending a lifetime studying especially the monumental intellectual heritage of Islamic jurisprudence and law, I have come to realize that at least for a thousand years, Islam has been and is likely to continue to be in one shape or another the, a major component in most political, economic, sociological, and moral issues that have confronted human beings. This is a, this is a really, really fascinating point. So when we speak about the West, first question, uh, where is the West? What, uh, what countries would you all include in the West? Anyway. Well, America is definitely one of them, but I think some parts of Europe, like the problem America is like Britain, Europe, right? Yeah, France, like one of those, the big ones. Okay, so America, and probably most of Europe, but especially England, France, Germany. Uh, what else? So Western United States, yeah. Australia? Yeah, Australia. We'd consider that to be part of the West. What else? Really? Yeah, wouldn't we? It's just a Western country. A bunch of kangaroos and... Okay, that's one way to put it. I guess all, I mean, all the countries outside of China, Russia, Russia is not the best. Russia is an interesting thing. So Russia is sometimes included in the West, sometimes not. And usually when we're speaking <laughs> of the West, we're speaking of Europe and the European settler states. So basically Europe and then America, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. Would you include Israel? as part of the West. Yes. And, and some within Israel, I mean, aside from, from the issues of occupation and wiping out the Palestinians and such, uh, within Israel, one of the criticisms uh, that, that some uh, uh, Israelis give is that when they're establishing the country, they had the choice between making it a Western country versus making it an Asian country. And some people argue that the mistake they made was to make it a Western country. Okay, so that, that's a whole, a whole uh, other set of conversations. Uh, but the point is that, yeah, we'd include that in the West. It's also a colonial state. It's also a European settler state. And, and so what is it that, that makes all these countries the West? Because obviously it's not location. Morocco is just as West as Spain is and is more West than Germany. Uh, some of it is the economic structure, some of it is cultural, some of it is, is, race, is race in terms of the, the, the white lands and such. Uh, if we speak about the, uh, the intellectual history of the West, like the intellectual lineage of the West, then it's four civil or five civilizations. Uh, uh, anyone want to try to name any of them? 
So five civilizations that sort of form the foundations of the West. Would the Greeks and the Romans be one or two of them? Greeks, Romans. Okay, you got two of them. The British Empire? So the British Empire is there. Uh, but here, I'll give you a hint. It's religions. Okay. Egyptians? Well, later. Byzantines? So, so Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. These are like well, these are the five big, big contributors in terms of what eventually becomes the West. And if we really think about it, when does uh, when does the Renaissance take place? Roughly, what years? Say it again. Say it, sorry. Deep world history. Testing my knowledge today. <laughs> so is it the Late 1700s, late, late, late early, 1700s. early. So the Renaissance begins around the 1500s, and and what else uh, happens right around that time, just a few hundred miles to the west? The Inquisition. Yeah, that's exactly what I was not going to say. Yeah, I was thinking of the Spanish Inquisition. Yeah, well, I like your accent. The Spanish oh, Inquisition. Oh no, I actually speak Spanish. So that's the thing. Oh, mashallah. So, so yeah, the Reconquista is is taking place, reclaiming Spain, although it didn't own Spain prior, and and so when we say when we speak about Columbus and the Inquisition, that's the end of the 1400s, and shortly after that we have the Renaissance, and part of what is taking place with the Renaissance is this whole system of learning is now shifting, it's continuing, but shifting, you know, from essentially from from Spain. To, to Italy and England and such. And so think of it as a continuum. Uh, at that time, when they were in the Renaissance, they didn't think, hey, everybody, we're in the Renaissance. It's British scholars a couple hundred years later who pointed to that era and decided that that is a, a Renaissance, although some of it was just a shift in, in economic structures. So, so here, Harabul Fadl is saying, and I think he's speaking not only objectively, but also very, very uh, passionately about, about how much he loves Islamic law, that, that for a thousand years, Islamic law has been a major component in the morality of the world. And the reason why I want to draw attention to this is often, again, when we're thinking of Islamic law, we're thinking of it in the most basic form. Can I use Crest or Colgate to brush my teeth, right? Can I eat at McDonald's? Can I eat at Chipotle? Those super ultra, ultra simple questions, kind of missing the point of the whole intellectual infrastructure that, that Islam in general and Islamic jurisprudence in particular provides. And, and, and so I find this quote to be very, very uh, fascinating and, and profound. And he's suggesting it will continue to do so. It is going to continue to be a major component uh, uh, in the moral development of the world. So as you're imagining, not just uh, Islam, but the whole Islamic sciences that we talked about way in the first day, think of these things as these big, sophisticated systems of thinking. And related to that, we're at 808. The last point I want to draw our attention to is, uh, I don't think I'll be able to find it, but the, <clears throat> this word tradition. So I don't think we've, we've actually defined tradition very much. I spoke about the traditional Islamic sciences and such. 
this thing that we call Islamic tradition is literally uh, a generations long conversation. So like, for example, if we speak of Western tradition, uh, so the West, even though in its narrative, the, the fight between East and West goes on for, for a thousand years, the modern West is basically about 200, give or take 300 years old. And, and the tradition of the West is these philosophers that are writing and they're responding to each other and that other people responding to them. And that whole conversation that starts out with a number of philosophers and then expands and expands and other thinkers and throw in Newton and then Einstein responding to Newton and such, that becomes what we call the tradition of the West. And so Islamic tradition, when we're speaking about the Hadith sciences, whether we're speaking about Islamic law, whether we're speaking about theology, it's literally a generations long conversation. And so to give you an example of this is that we often teach that after the Quran, what is the most authentic book? Anyone? Anybody know? Islamic hadith, or, or so like, like is it an Islamic book or? Yeah, Islamic book. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That, that Bukhari's collection of hadith. Yeah, exactly, honey. Uh, Bukhari's collection of hadith after the Quran is the most authentic book. Uh, that's more of a saying among the masses rather than among the scholars. And then we have a number of bogus stories that we teach, uh, you know, at the Sunday school level that, okay, Imam Bukhari was collecting hadith and would travel across the world trying to collect these narrations and such, and that didn't happen. And, and rather you have the prophet, may peace be upon him, and this is more of the Sunni narrative than the Shia narrative, you have the prophet, peace be upon him, and then the companions are sitting with him, and then they are compiling, they're memorizing what he's saying and doing and his teachings in addition to the Quran, and then they're sharing it with other companions, and then they're sharing it with people who came later, and they're sharing it with people who came later, and then that's creating schools of learning. And the modification in terms of, of Shia tradition is that some of that is still the same, but primary attention is primary learning is happening through imams. So first through Imam Ali, then through Imam Hassan, then through Imam Hussein, then through Imam Jafar Sadiq, so forth and so on. But still the same general format. And so, so then you have 200 years after the death of the Prophet, you have Bukhari who makes this collection of authenticated hadith. But then you have people who then respond to Bukhari and they say, okay, looking at your text, this is not authentic, but this is an authentic narration you left out. And then you'll have people who respond to them and people who respond to them. And so what I'm speaking, what I'm saying is that when we speak of Islamic law and use this word tradition, it isn't like a couple of guys got together and said, this is the tradition. Rather, you have someone like Imam Abu Hanifa in Kufa, who is a teacher and a jurist, and he's giving answers to people. And then students, are, are embracing what the teacher is saying, but then also critiquing. And then their students are critiquing them. And then other people are coming along, looking at their books, critiquing them. And so the key point I'm making is that when we think of tradition, just think of tradition as this ongoing conversation where people are reading texts and responding to texts and writing new texts. So, 
And so what does that mean? The tradition is not, tradition is not this fixed thing that goes on for a thousand years. If it was that, then Islam would be dead. But because it is this active conversation, it means that in the year 2020, or anybody know what, we, what year we're in, in terms of the Islamic calendar? Anybody know? 1500. 1430. Okay, so both of you are totally wrong, but it's okay. 1442. So, you came within 100 years, and Hussein came within about 10 years, but which is still pretty good. But, uh, but the point is that even in the year 1442 or 2020, we become part of the construction of the tradition. So it's not like this thing that happened a thousand years ago or 1400 years ago, and it's solidified. Rather, it's a conversation that continues through to today. Yeah, Adil. So do you think traditioning is dying, so to speak, in the, in the, in the definition you're saying? Because it doesn't seem like there's any conversations happening anymore. Mm. And in that terms, it feels like tradition is dying. And I know in the Quran, it says that eventually mankind will come to a point where the Quran will be lifted from the earth, but not literally, just nobody will know about it. Okay. So, so that's not the Quran, that's in the Hadith. Anyway, actual, huh? uh, so, so do I believe that tradition is sort of dying? In a way, yeah, I agree. Um, and the way I would express it is that if we look at where funding goes in our community, uh, uh, or where donations go in our community, it goes to the building of mosques, and it goes to relief work. And very, very little of it goes towards uh, the development of Islamic education, Islamic scholarship, which then means what? That there's no, there's very little incentives for someone to go into Islamic scholarship because they're not going to have a job. Like literally earlier today, I was on the phone with a, with a friend of mine in Boston. He's getting a PhD in philosophy of religion, and and he can't find a job anywhere. Um, and this this is a guy with a very very big brain. Um, uh, and his plight, uh, I can list a bunch of other people that are in the exact same boat that are living near poverty level, uh, because in our community, we don't invest in knowledge and we don't invest in knowledge production. So from that aspect, yeah, tradition is dying because there aren't that many people who are participating in the conversation because they don't have food. Whereas in generations in the past, there would be full endowments that would fund uh, scholarship and, and fund education and such. And, and yeah. And so, uh, uh, and so then our community, it becomes a vicious circle. So not much money is being invested in the development of Islamic scholarship, which means not too many people are going in those fields, uh, except for the people who can't get into like med school and law school and such, which then means it's a lower level of, of discourse which then means they're not going to bring it back onto us. They're not going to have answers that the community needs. And so we raised this point, I think, last week about Islam being irrelevant. And it's, it becomes this perpetual cycle where Islam becomes further ir irrelevant because of the lack the of beginning funding. beginning of the end? Um, could be. I mean, Prophecy-wise. Uh, so, so, yeah, when you spoke of the prophecy, that's in the Hadith and the Quran, where Allah Ta'ala will take away the, it's the knowledge by way of taking away scholars. So, and, and so, yeah, uh, there was a big scholar who died over the weekend. Uh, her name is um, Lala Bakhtiar, Lali Bakhtiar. 
a big, big scholar. She wrote or translated 150 books. She's from Chicago. And, and I don't know of anyone who can compare to, for example, her. Um, but she also lived in ultra, ultra simple means. Um, and in fact, I think her home um, for the last like 20 years of her life yeah, she was the uh, she was the right or no, she wasn't a co-writer of the study Quran. She wrote uh, the sublime Quran. She gave a full translation of the Quran, uh, and I think she actually lived in the bookstore where where she worked at Kazi Publications over on Belmont. Uh, and and so again, what is the overall point that as a community we do almost very very minimal funding towards Islamic education. Her huge amounts of funding for elaborate mosques, right? But not even even we're funding a lot for the facade and the construction, not very much for the for the for the personnel that works at the mosque. And then huge amounts of funding for relief, you know, whether we're talking about Palestine or earthquakes, um, and I mean those things like that we have to do, right? Uh, but even that more focus on relief work overseas than local, but. Even after all of that, um, um, it's literally like like pennies compared to all that in terms of what it's given for Islamic scholarship, and and so that comes back on us in the sense that I don't see. I don't think that's our fault. As like you say, the community, and I don't think it's the community's fault. Okay. Individuals and non-governmental organizations can only do so much. I feel like the ball has been dropped in the Middle East. These are the people that got that run Muslim nations. They. They have the power to do all that. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't say it's our. Well, I'm not. It's not so much that I'm blaming, um, um, but I am saying that uh, we are spending uh, all kinds of money on elaborate mosques, though. You know. Oh, uh, I mean, yeah, true. Like we want to build the best mosque. I mean, even the, I think it was the Prophet or the Hadith, but somebody said, "Yeah, stop competing to build mosques or masjids." You know. Yeah, that he he fears that Muslims will compete each other. In, in extravagant mosques, the way Christians do with with churches, yeah. Yeah, and so like yeah. here we yeah. are. Yeah, and so so all of that. I mean, all this is 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 getting into or is laying out. You know, the things that are on Khalil Bofal's mind as he's going to the book. So next week, inshallah, we're going to actually get into finally get into some of the rudiments of Islamic law, and and we'll be building. You know, we'll be setting up little tools to help understand how it operates. And then after that, we'll be getting into what the actual heart of the book is and such. What would um, like scholarship of Islam look like at this point? Right. Yeah. So, so it's a couple aspects. One would be the funding of the of the institutions in which uh, training is being given, and and so so uh, in Chicago, for example. Islam of Chicago, the dominant system of Islamic uh, scholarly education is from Deoband in, in India. And Deoband is a school that's formed around 1860 in response to colonization. And, and that moment in Indian history is interesting. So uh, are, are any familiar with 1857 in India and what happens? Yes. Um, wasn't it there was the the Calcutta support revolution. Yes, exactly. And so uh, you want to tell all of us, tell us uh, more about it? Um, I don't, there was one, okay, so I, there was a rumor that had spread around that the, uh -huh. um, I'll open my camera, 
that the the guns that were the rifles that were being supplied to the Indian sepoys, which the British military were used, there was a rumor that there was um, stuff from either like cows or pigs, which were being used in it, which would offend, of course, both the Hindus and the Muslims, because mm-hmm. in order to operate that rifle, you would have to like put it in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, you put this grease and then, yeah. and then put the grease inside the barrel and then put the pellet or the, the bullet in the, in the barrel, yeah. As a response to that rumor that went around, a lot of the Indian sepoys who would work for the British military, they started rebelling against the British army. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, so the British speak of this as a mutiny and the Indians speak of this as a revolution or a war for independence. And, and so, so what happens is that it becomes the official beginning of colonization. So the British are in India for centuries but uh, it's British companies. It's not the actual British uh, government, and it's British companies that are that are that are you know trafficking opium, that are trafficking salt, that are exploiting India, Indian resources, Indian workers, and such. And and so this becomes this trigger event for for an uprising, and this becomes the excuse for the British military, the official British military, to come in. Uh, the British Navy and such, and that's the official beginning of British colonization. Even though the British, like I said, were there for a couple, for a couple centuries. Uh, but then, and so in cities throughout eastern India, there are these fights, uh, bloody, bloody fights. And the British version of the story is that the Indians were ultra violent, and the Indian version of the story is that the British were beyond ultra violent. And and. Even if we say the story, the, the truth is somewhere in between, it's probably closer to the Indian version of the story. Yeah, Mangal Pandey is, is a movie about that. Mangale, Mangal. Anyway, so, so, uh, but then. Uh, it again? Hollywood Game Strong for Professor Muzaffar. <laughs> so, so, uh, so, a lot of scholars were getting rounded up and executed by the British. And, and so a lot of scholars started retreating from urban life. And in the next decade, they formed a number of madrasas and three prominent madrasas. One is the madrasa at Aligarh. And, and then another is the madrasa at Deoband. And another is a madrasa in Lucknow uh, named Darul Nadwa or Nadwat al-Ulama. And these were three different responses to colonization. Aligarh was saying that, all right, these are the masters of the world right now. And so if we want to succeed, we have to be like them. So you would go there to do Islamic studies, but you primarily go there to get an engineering or a medical degree. Okay. And then uh, Nadwat al-Ulama is saying that uh, we're in an era of ideas. And, and so that's what we need to focus on in terms of our learning. And then Deoband is saying, we have no response to this, to what's going on in the world. Our approach is to retreat by becoming extra conservative. So uh, Aligarh, uh, among the languages of instruction would include English. Yeah. Deoband, no Western languages. It's basically Urdu, Farsi, and Arabic. And in Aligarh, you'd be dressing in Western clothing, you know, or it would not be a surprise if you're dressing in Western clothing. Um, in in Deoband, you'd be dressing in quote unquote Muslim clothing, social varkamis, that type of stuff. 
and and so the Brelvis is another movement of Sufis that also that also grows around this 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 time, uh, and and theirs was more of a theological stance, uh, um, separate from from learning. They basically said that when the Prophet peace be upon him went on the night journey, he didn't come back. That what came back was his nur. And so they had a whole theology that they that they set up, and for them, the Deobandis were like the evil uh, were the evil forces because Deobandis were focused so much on conservative scholarship. Uh, and so, so then, how do these these uh, uh, madrasas develop an influence in across the Indian subcontinent into uh, what is modern day Pakistan? This is the 1860s, way before Pakistan, and into a little bit of of of, of modern day Afghanistan. Deoband grew among the masses. They're the ones that are most connected with the street. But again, remember, their default was towards conservative, conservative interpretations of everything for the purposes of self-preservation. And so part of the, uh, your, your original question, honey, is like, what does Islamic scholarship look like? I'm saying part of it is the institution and the curriculum, which will have a philosophy behind it in terms of what is it trying to produce. And so that grew the most, and that happens to be in Chicago uh, among the Daisies, uh, one of the dominant uh, approaches to to uh, uh, Islam. So that's one. Uh, that's uh, and then uh, Aligarh uh, often became the the educational system for the elite of of the subcontinent. And and Nadwatul Ulama is interesting because that developed a connection with Oxford. So if you've heard of SOAS, uh, School of Oriental and African Studies, uh, they uh, they have a connection with the Nadwis, and 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 so so that's one school. Another school is Al Azhar, which uh, has been around for about a thousand years. Another one is Medina University, which has only been around for a couple hundred years. Those are the ultra Salafis. And and then in terms of, of Western Shia tradition, um, Um is one of the, the big influences for a lot of the Shia scholars in America. And then and then Kufa is, is another uh, of the of the big influences and such. And Lucknow is also a big a big Shia center as well. But the point I'm making is that when these schools are being formed, they are being formed with an educational philosophy, which is then manifested by way of their curricula. And then they're producing scholars that will have a particular uh, philosophical bent. And so all of that is, is Islamic scholarship. And the goal is then to provide answers for how to live a full life in dunya and in preparation for, for, for akhirah. So in theory, what you want from a graduate from an Islamic, scholar, uh, an Islamic scholarly institution is a person who can answer your questions, who lives in the same world that you live in. And, and and the idea of Islamic tradition is that if you follow it, it actually makes your life not only more full, but it makes your life easier. That an autodidact, like a self-taught person, uh, more than likely they're going to be tripping over themselves, making Islam harder than it needs to be. So that would be like an example of, of what is Islamic scholarship and, and then what are the goals. Any other questions? Yeah, uh, can we just you and me talk after the class? Not regarding anything about this class, but the yeah, sure, inshallah, definitely. No other questions. 
All righty, inshallah. So, so next week we're going to start getting into the the actual Sharia sections of of his book. If you if you read through those sections, you're going to find him like meandering and all over the place. I made the complaint before that uh, I do regard him as a profound thinker, but I don't regard him as the, the best of writers. He's a, a very widening, meandering writer, and this whole book could have probably been at least fifty percent smaller. You know. If not even do you recommend we do any reading in advance or so so he has the i forgot what the actual chapter titles are but it's basically it's that section where he starts talking about what is the sharia and what i'd recommend if you have time is to try to grasp uh the terminology that he's using and 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 there's gonna be a lot of it and so don't worry about it if if, if you get zero out of it um, but try to get at least maybe even a philosophical sense of how this thing that's called Sharia, how that works. And that's also going to be a small subsection, which will probably keep us busy for a couple of weeks. And then the heart of the book is him wrestling with, with you know, modern life through the lens of Islamic law. So, cool. so if there's no other questions, inshallah, uh, feel free to give me a holler if, you, if anything comes up before next week. And otherwise, we will call it a day. Okay. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika nashadu illa ilaha illa anta nastafiruka wa natubi lake. May Allah tell reward you all, inshallah. And we'll see you in about a week or so. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa